0: You done now? Oh Brad, what have you done now? Hey guys, Brad Gilmore here from Back to the Future the Podcast. And if you're out there looking to rent a DeLorean time machine, well let me tell you the number one place to do so. That's DeLoreanRental.com. DeLoreanRental.com, they have the DeLorean Time Machine all across the United States, from Los Angeles all the way to NYC and even a few in the UK, Germany, France, Italy, and adding more cars daily. Check out their packages online to see what would be your best fit for your event. And I'm talking, man, if you need to go to whatever it is to have a DeLorean, if you're looking to rent a DeLorean time machine for a birthday, corporate event, wedding, anniversary, or party, whatever it is that you're looking for, just go to DeLoreanRental.com. Again, that's DeLoreanRental.com. It's the one-stop shop and place to get a DeLorean time machine for your special event do it today! Don't run out of time. Hit that book now button on DeloreanRental.com to get a quote. Again, DeloreanRental.com. That's DeloreanRental.com. Hey guys, before we start the show this week, I want to remind you April fourteenth is the big day. The big, big day. It is back from the future. A celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. A book. By me, Brad Gilmore, based upon a lot of the stuff that we talked about on Back to the Future the podcast and a host of more, more, more greatness and back to the future goodness. So if you want to get the book, go over to Amazon.com, Barnesandoble.com, indiebound.com, or back from the future and get yours today. You can get a you can get a copy today. You can pre-order it and it'll be in your inbox, mailbox, wherever your box is, you can get it on April the 14th. So if you if you get this book and you like it, you know, read it with a glass of milk.
1: Chocolate. As they said in the film, Back to the Future,
0: where are we are going? We don't need roads. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Are you telling me you built a
1: time machine?
0: Out of a DeLorean?
1: Marty! You've got to come back with me!
0: The Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Future: The Podcast, the only podcast looking back in time with the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore, and welcome back to the show. We have a fun show today. Today, I've been—I don't know—mulling over for weeks exactly how I wanted to wrap. What has been a phenomenal season six of Back to the Future, the podcast. I mean, beyond my wildest dreams of having Crispin Glover, Don Fuller Love, Leah Thompson, all in one season of this illustrious show, five years after I started it. It's pretty crazy. And I also didn't think that during the season, uh, of the podcast I would have a book out Back from the Future, A Celebration of the Greatest Time Travel Story Ever Told. Um, I talked with the publisher recently. They told me it was a bestseller, number one bestseller on Amazon so that was pretty cool. Um, so thank you all if you have read the book. I really appreciate it. I am um, right now getting ready to gear up for Season 7 but I wanted to like, end this on a great note because you know we had the Reunited Apart thing that that Josh Gad did with the cast of Back to the Future, which I thought was great. It was awesome to see Tom Wilson reprise Biff and that little extra that they put out. Also, I want to give a shout out to What the Flux podcast. They have been crushing it on all kinds of great Back to the Future related content. I, I want to do another crossover episode with them. I need to reach out to my homies over there at What the Flux and maybe we can do some sort of crossover episode during this quarantine because they they they've been doing a lot of really interesting things like um they just did an episode i started listening to today where they discussed if we should ever see the stoltz cut if we should ever see the eric stoltz movie uh version of back to the future is it is interesting they pretty much have the entire film with eric stoltz done couple m's in the bank and you could you could release the stoltz cut uh i don't know do you want to see that would we ever see that i'm not sure but oh, go give uh, some love to my people over there at What the Flux, because uh, they've been doing really great. And then we just had the 35th anniversary of Back to the Future Part One pass, and I wanted to celebrate it in a in a special way. And I thought, well, I did write a book about the entire franchise to kind of coincide with the 35th anniversary. But what I wanted to do here for the people who haven't read the book yet, if you haven't purchased the book yet, there is all kinds of versions available: ebook and an audio book, as well as the hardcover, and Joe Himple read the audio book, and I wanted to play a chapter from the book. This is the audio version of the book. I'm gonna play a chapter. This is the American Times story, Old Man Biff chapter, which long-term fans of the podcast will recognize. This has been a subject matter discussed before on this podcast, but this is how I broke it down in my book. I did a whole chapter, thousands of words Based upon American Time Story, Old Man Biff, the deleted scene from Back to the Future Part 2 that should have been left in the movie. I talk about its importance and more on this episode of Back to the Future, the podcast. This is an excerpt, 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 excerpt? How do you say that word? Excerpt from my book, Back from the Future. This is Chapter 5, read by Joe Hempel. This is American Time Story, Old Man Biff, here on... Back to the Future of the Podcast. Let's get into it. Oh my God, you're my dreamboat, for sure. Chapter 5.
1: American Time Story. Old Man Biff. As is illustrated with recent big screen films, such as 2019's Joker or 2016's Suicide Squad, Film-going audiences feel just as connected to their favorite cinematic villains as they do the heroes. Find a Star Wars fan that doesn't tell you Darth Vader is just as beloved as Luke Skywalker. This is the way I feel about the torment of Hill Valley Biff Tannen. I truly believe Biff Tannen is one of the greatest villains in movie history, and I think there are two reasons his presence on screen felt as commanding as Darth Vader and the high school menace, Regina George. The first reason is the fantastic writing of the character by both Gail and Zemeckis. I don't think the character would have been as memorable if Biff was written any differently. However, the chief reason we remember the name Biff Tannen is because of the supreme performance of Thomas F. Wilson. Wilson began his career as a stand-up comedian and improv artist, performing at legendary clubs such as Catch a Rising Star in New York, the club that saw the rise of stars such as Jerry Seinfeld, and the world-famous The Comedy Store in Los Angeles. During his early days in Los Angeles, it wasn't uncommon to see Wilson on the same stage as Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, Billy Crystal, Jim Carrey, and other comedians of that stature. When Wilson landed the role of Biff Tannen, he began crafting the character that would be the perfect foil for the Eric Stoltz version of Marty McFly. Wilson came across as everything the filmmakers had in mind and more. Wilson added to the legacy of the character in the future sequels, having to alter his performance for each timeline he found himself in. It was Wilson's ability to tailor his portrayal of Biff that always left me in amazement. If you aren't aware of how many different versions of Biff we saw, let's count together. At the beginning of Back to the Future, Biff is seen in the McFly household after wrecking the family automobile in a drinking and driving accident. Biff comes off as the ultimate a-hole, but not completely evil. Wilson then plays Biff younger, but it is indeed the same version of Biff we see him eventually become in 1985. But after George decks Biff in the parking lot of the Hill Valley High School during the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, Biff becomes a subservient errand boy to George McFly in 1985. Those were three variations of the character in one film, and if it stopped there, Wilson's performance would have been enough. But in parts two and three, Wilson adds to the total count of Biff variations and related family members, bringing his total to seven different depictions of tannins. Wilson plays his famous character as an old man in the year 2015, as Biff's grandson who had a few short circuits in his binary implants, as the greed-filled, murderous, biff horrific version of the character in 1985A, and as his great-grandfather, the Western gunslinger, Buford Mad Dog Tannen. During the second season of Back to the Future, the podcast, Biff became a hotly debated subject. On the show, we did a series of episodes called Good Cut, Bad Cut, where we would watch the deleted scenes from each of the three films and discuss whether the filmmakers made a good decision cutting the scene or altered the timeline in a bad way. We talked about mainly small scenes that didn't affect the overall story, such as a scene from Back to the Future where George's hand is forced into buying way more Sophie May peanut brittle from his neighbor Howard than any human being should consume due to his cowering nature. This was a good cut. There was the scene in 1955 where Marty asked a woman to pinch him, and instead she slaps him. Again, a good cut. A rather comical but unnecessary scene was one that saw George being locked in a payphone booth after he calls for an operator to give him the time at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, and Mr. Strickland refuses to get him out. Again, good cut. But my co-hosts and I seemed to agree that everything that was cut was done for good reason, until one scene. The particular scene in question was from the cutting room floor of Back to the Future Part Two. For those who have never watched it online or on the DVD extras, allow me to set the scene. After the 1985 Jennifer Parker is taken by the two female police officers to Hildale, which was once a prominent area of town and is now home of Tranks, Zipheads, and Lobos, as one officer claimed, Marty and Doc go to rescue her from her future home and risk her running into her other self, you know, time paradox type things. While Marty is overlooking Hilldale, he sees what used to be the pinnacle of living in Hill Valley and fails to realize what it had become. Marty continues gazing upon his future residential area and even sees a dog walking himself with the help of some 2015 tech. Doc, after trying to help Jennifer get out of her future home that lacks doorknobs, frantically asks for Marty's assistance to aid the now-fainted Jennifer, who fainted after she ran into her other self. Thankfully, no paradox occurred. Once Marty leaves the DeLorean unattended, we see old man Biff, the Biff who noticed Marty and Doc's time machine earlier in the day, get dropped off by a taxi. After the driver tells Biff to be careful because this is a rough neighborhood, Biff makes his way to the now driverless DeLorean. Biff then begins to go full-on grand theft auto and takes over the controls of the DeLorean, sending him somewhere in time. Before Marty and Doc are aware of what occurred, Biff returns with the time machine. Something does not seem right with Hill Valley's evil elder statesman. Biff looks as if he just went 12 rounds with Tyson, and now an even more hunched-over old man exits the time machine, but not before he breaks his all-too-recognizable cane and attempts to flee unnoticed. Marty and Doc do not realize Biff was even in the car until much later, in 1985A, when they come to the conclusion that old Biff gave young Biff the all-knowing Gray's Sports Almanac, making Biff the richest man in the world. But that's not what our chief focus is here. What we are looking at is the deleted portion of that scene. In the uncut version of the previously described DeLorean napping, we see a continuance of the suffering Biff was experiencing. Old man Biff, again looking rather disheveled, crouches behind a car and looks at Doc telling Einstein to get into the time machine. Biff is attempting to remain unnoticed because if it were discovered at that moment that he had stolen the time machine, his plan to enrich himself in the past would have been potentially exposed and Marty and Doc would have worked to remedy the situation right then and there. But, staying low and out of sight, Biff looks almost as if he is melting like the Wicked Witch of the West after Dorothy poured water over her. The old man is now breathing heavily, succumbing to more pain with every passing second. Biff sees Marty and the gang fly off and head back to 1985 without noticing a single thing. Once we hear the flux capacitor fluxing and the time circuits reached their 88-mile-per-hour requirement, the time machine vanishes into that dark Hilldale night. Almost immediately thereafter, old man Biff falls onto the dark, unforgiving pavement, just as Marty did when he saved George from being struck by a car. But this time, Lorraine wasn't there to nurse anyone back to health. Just as we see Biff slowly fall and hit the ground, his entire body and soul disappears. You may have just heard what was cut from the film and not think twice about it. You may be thinking that it was not a particularly great scene and there was much more story that was probably best left on the cutting room floor. I know when I first saw the same scene, I did not understand it or care for it. But as I began to see why it was written in the script, I thought that it was a very bad cut, and a co-host of the podcast said it was the worst cut of the entire trilogy. If you recall, which I'm sure that you do, Doc points out during his first meeting with Marty that the picture Marty supplied him, in hopes of proving that he was from the future, of him and his siblings was a pretty mediocre photographic fakery because Marty's brother Dave's hair was cut off. This was the first clue that we as the audience were given that Marty should be concerned about more than getting back to the future. As the movie progressed, we learned that Marty interrupted his father and his mother's first meeting, and he implicated himself in the event that led them to fall in love. Because of that, Marty has now put his and his siblings' future in jeopardy. Doc finally puts it together that Marty's actions have erased his future from existence. Doc warns Marty that he cannot come into contact with anyone else or leave Doc's laboratory until the night of the lightning storm for risk of further damaging the space-time continuum and Marty's own future. Even though Marty doesn't follow those instructions exactly, he does his best to repair the damage he had already done. When we see Marty on stage during the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, we begin to see his hand disappear as he plays Earth Angel alongside Marvin Barry and the Starlighters. In what was one of the most frightening moments in the film, Marty eventually falls over, and we think his efforts to get George and Lorraine to fall in love were not enough. George seemingly lets a bully cut in on he and Lorraine's first dance. It's then that the two kiss, and Marty is saved. But even though Marty's despair is only temporary, we all hoped our teenaged soon-to-be rock star did not ruin his life before it began. The whole George, Lorraine, Calvin Klein storyline of the first film was more than just a fun way for the writers to spend more time in the 1950s. It also illustrated to the audience that time travel comes with very high stakes that could result in events of the future never occurring, or even worse, the loss of life. This is what brings us back to Biff. When Biff disappears in the deleted scene from Back to the Future Part Two. We have to assume, given the rules of time travel in the film, that something occurred in the past that led to his ultimate demise. We know that Biff gave his younger self the almanac on November 12, 1955, and then he was still around and powerful as ever in 1985A, which many people who worked on the films and fans of the franchise refer to as the Biff-horrific time period. That leaves us to surmise that something Biff did over the next 30 years caused him to perish. But what? Also, another question that arises due to this scene is, if Biff changed the future by giving himself the almanac and was then erased from existence, why didn't that occur right when he handed over the book? Thankfully, we do have some answers for both of those questions. Let's first investigate what happened to Biff in the past to cause his future to be erased. In a 1990 television special hosted by Kirk Cameron entitled, The Secrets of Back to the Future, Cameron begins to discuss how we got the Biff horrific time period as a result of the almanac, and then talks about what happened when Biff returns to the future. But before I reveal Cameron's answer, which I am sure was a reason he did not just come up with on his own and at some point had to be approved by Bob Gale, I would like the chance to float a couple of my own theories out there as to what happened to Biff. Imagine this. Biff goes to the farmlands of California to talk to the son of Mr. Peabody, Sherman Peabody, about attempting to fulfill his father's dream of breeding pine trees. While Biff is riding to the site of what will be the first fully operational pine breeding farm in the greater Hill Valley area, his chauffeured limousine is involved in a head on collision with a large truck that had the name D. Jones Manure Hauling painted in big white letters on the side. The impact sends Biff flying over the partition and through the front windshield of the long black limo. Biff is sent directly into the dreadfully foul-smelling back of the vehicle, which he was all too familiar with. When the police and paramedics arrive on the scene, no one else is seriously injured, but Biff is transported to Hill Valley General Hospital, where he eventually passes away due to the medical staff's inability to clear his airways from all of the cow crap that has now filled his lungs. Another possibility could be that Biff purchases a Ford Mustang which Doc would never drive, ask Bob Gale why, or some other high-priced automobile. While driving recklessly one Saturday morning through the streets surrounding Biff Tannen's pleasure paradise, Biff hits a corner rather rapidly and kicks up some debris from the overly filthy streets, and it damages the hood of the car. To remedy the situation, Biff takes his now-dented whip to Terry at the Western Auto Store in downtown Hill Valley, where he asks Terry to promptly repair his car. As he begins to make like a tree and get out of there, a mechanic rolls out from under a car and accidentally collides with Biff, causing him to stumble. As Biff tries to catch his balance, he falls into a large rack of car wax that begins to shake and eventually falls over on him, killing him on impact. When the police come to investigate the accident, they made a note that he could have survived one coat of wax falling on him, but two was just too much. My final theory, before I reveal the actual explanation, is this. Conceivably, since Biff is so rich and so well-known by everyone in the United States, and presumably the world, he may be asked to be involved in different forms of entertainment. I'm not saying he's got leading man potential, but perhaps there is a cameo here or a cameo there. During the late 2000s, Biff is called by world wrestling entertainment promoter and fellow billionaire Vince McMahon Vince tells Biff that he has an idea for him at the upcoming year's WrestleMania pay-per-view. At the time on WWE television, Vince is playing up the fact that he is an evil billionaire and is throwing his weight and power around. Vince then tells Biff that he can come on the show as the hero of the story and attempt to stop Vince from doing any more harm. This leads to the two men embroiled in war, and Vince pitches an idea for a match with the title The Battle of the Billionaires for WrestleMania. Vince tells Biff that each man would select a representative to battle for them in the ring and even assigns a special guest referee to see over the contest, WWE Hall of Famer, Stone Cold Steve Austin. He adds a stipulation. The loser must shave his head. Biff agrees. As Biff and Vince see their two picks battle it out for bragging rights and follicle security, Steve Austin grows tired of the two men. After the match is over, the two billionaires are both given Austin's finishing maneuver, the stone-cold stunner. While Vince is okay after the attack, Biff is literally stunned into lifelessness. I must make a quick confession. The previously proposed way that Biff meets his ultimate demise is not entirely as original as the other two scenarios are. This idea is based upon a real-life wrestling storyline between Vince McMahon and then-host of NBC's The Apprentice, Donald Trump. Unlike Biff in my scenario, Trump was not injured at all at WrestleMania. However, the idea for Biff to take his place came from a 2015 The Daily Beast interview with Bob Gale. In the interview, Bob Gale reveals that Donald Trump was the inspiration for the alternate 1985 version of Biff Tannen. When I read that, I decided in my theory of why Biff disappears in that deleted scene to replace Trump with Biff and spice up the finish of the match, brother. Let's finally reveal the confirmed reason Biff is erased from existence in 2015. Again, during the television special, The Secrets of Back to the Future, Kirk Cameron says the following when explaining the cause and effect of time travel. And just what happens to Biff when he returns to the future? Well, it's likely that his wife, Lorraine, shot him in the mid-1990s. There it is, folks a bombshell straight from the mouth of Mike Seaver. Lorraine shot Biff, and that's why he disappeared. I tried to further research where this idea of Lorraine killing Biff came from, and I was tipped off by Stephen Clark from BackToTheFuture.com that Gail had confirmed this theory, and it was listed on the website's frequently asked questions. All questions asked on the website were answered directly by Gail, and here's what he had to say verbatim. Our intention regarding Old Biff was that upon his return to 2015, he would be erased from existence because he had changed his entire destiny by giving his younger self the sports almanac. Probably Lorraine shot him sometime around 1996. Now, even though this is the official statement from the co-creator of the Back to the Future universe, there seems to be an alternate timeline of events that Gale has always lent credence to. There have been a series of comics published about Biff Tannen, one of which discusses Rich Biff's death. In Back to the Future, Biff to the Future 6, the cover of the comic shows Biff Tannen being shot in the chest, and all you see is a gloved hand squeezing the cold steel of what looks to be a modern 9mm handgun. The comic reveals Biff was actually killed by his great-grandfather, Buford Mad Dog Tannen, who we met in Back to the Future Part 3 in 1885. The comic's timeline states that Doc Brown sends Biff to 1884, and that's the year Buford puts a bullet in Biff's back. Also, the same comic reveals that Lorraine actually shoots Biff in 1986, after Biff begins to start his bid for President of the United States but is unsuccessful due to Biff wearing a bulletproof vest. As comic logic can be, it's all a bit confusing, but I accept the fact that Lorraine does shoot Biff as Cameron and Gail confirmed, as the explanation of why Biff is erased. The reason old man Biff doesn't vanish the instant he hands the book off to his younger self can also easily be explained. Just as we learned with Marty's dilemma in the first film, altering the past alters the future. But it's not done instantaneously, it's done over time. This is evident by the picture slowly fading or in Back to the Future Part Three when the tombstone erases one part at a time, it means reality has to catch up with events of the past, and it is not done as fast as it takes to jump time periods. If it did in fact occur at the moment an event is altered, well, Back to the Future would not be an interesting movie. I hope that I can convey why I think that the omission of this scene was a bad cut. It was deleted from the film because it was confusing. In the same facts forum on the film's official site, Gale further explains, The vast majority of the audience did not understand it, so we decided to cut it out, leaving the answer ambiguous and subject to various interpretations. Besides the previous explanation, you can believe that Old Biff had a heart attack from the shock of time travel, or from flying the car, or from something that happened to him in 1955. The scene again reiterated to the audience that the effects of time travel are very real. Just because you could go back and change an event that you always wanted to change doesn't mean it will solve all your problems in the future. Although it seems to be a bit cliché to say, everything does truly happen for a reason. And if you try to alter your density, I mean your destiny, there could be massive repercussions. I truly felt that the scene should have been left in the film because it shows us that even though Biff would become the most powerful man in the world, not even the most powerful man in the world can avoid death. There is no amount of money, there's no amount of notoriety, and there's no amount of power that can prevent the one thing that every person must face. I think that having this scene in the film would have further illustrated that, even in an alternate timeline, the evil of 5th tannin does not pay.